Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by YouTube Music. YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you expect from a streaming service with the magic. Ooh! We love magic here at Binge Mode of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Finally. Finally. Get music whenever you want it. Yes. Even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then pay just $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by The Hate You Give, the number one New York Times bestseller with a movie released on October 19th. The Hate You Give is an eye-opening story about how two different communities react when an unarmed black teenager is killed by police. It's also a story of childhood friends who grew up playing Harry Potter and a girl who channels her literary hero to find her voice and stand up for what's right. Visit thehateyougivebook.com for more information. That's thehateyou, letter U, givebook.com. Warning. Binge Mode contains adult content. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to have two women fighting over your unconscious body as you lay inert after imbibing poison, feel free to listen to this episode. But if you're not into some of the more salacious explorations of such things, then check out one of the other podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. Hell yeah. If you don't yet know why we're reaching into the lake for water, water, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. This memory is everything. Without it, we are blind. Without it, we leave the fate of our world to chance. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Mmm, what a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished extracting acromantula venom mm. from my oldest friend. Just happened to have this vial here for just these kind of circumstances. About my person. What a, <laughs> what a, what a, says that. It's Ringer Senior Creative. Your headmaster. Oh! Jason Concepcion. Mal the pincers. <laughs> Love that little sound that Daniel makes. Only a couple of degrees removed from your Robin Aaron breast milk I sound, I might observe. <laughs> Stay clear of the pincers! Because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you made the Slug Club, and if you didn't, you can always just waiter it. Please subscribe <laughs> to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, get at us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to bond with Belby over ice cream sundays. Fucking Belby. Fucking Belby. Also, <laughs> go ahead and head down to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our new Binge Mode merch. There's some truly great stuff there. How about a, my good friend Tom? Yes, shirt. please. How about a tough look for my guy shirt? It is a tough look. Belby, why don't you wear that? 
But it won't be a tough look for you if you're wearing <laughs> binge mode merchandise. <laughs> Not appropriate for funerals, which is a good thing because that was cut out of this movie. Yeah, no need to worry about it. <laughs> just, just raise your wand in the air. But good for all other occasions. <laughs> Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we concluded our Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince book binge by exploring how Assuming the Mantle shapes chapters 29 and 30 of the sixth book in JKR's Sacred Saga. And on today's episode, we're diving into the film adaptation. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While the Prince movie is today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep, on details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Mm. Taking the entire series into account from the moment the liquid luck hits our lips. So grab our arms, because it's time to head for a drink on an island, in a lake, in a cave. Mal, why is it when something happens? This is what is you three. Believe me, Headmaster. Isaac Cram and I have been asking ourselves the same question for six months. Well, while you're figuring it a doot, <laughs> let's offer up a very brief refresher on what actually happened in the Prince film by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of Plata Hogwarts. It's summertime and little whinging, and Harry is distraught, despondent, after the death of his friend, godfather, and father figure, Sirius Black, at the end of the previous movie. Just kidding, guys. He's out on the town, <laughs> flirting up a storm with the local barista. A dime. A straight dime. <laughs> but then Dumbledore arrives and casts Phallus Protego. <laughs> And informs young Harry that this is not the time for romance. This is the time for showing up to a random house to scare a strange man in the middle of the night. And Harry accompanies the headmaster on a successful recruiting trip as Horse Slughorn returns to the Hogwarts staff list. Tough look for my dumbly guy. Meanwhile, Bellatrix and Narcissa journey to Spinner's End. Kind of nice home. Yeah, a little too nice. Like, I was like, oh, this is a nice exposed brick. The bookshelves. This I is love. Wonderful. I love when the books just look like they're part of the wall, and then you got the crackling fire, some elf-made wine. It's like, yes, please. The place is like gentrifying around him. There's Snake, like a you need a Starbucks like down what, the. What does that go for an Airbnb? <laughs> I know, right? Honestly, imagine living down the hall from <laughs> Snape. There's these like a hipster couple and like they're two French bulldogs and then there's Snape. Fucking you got to put up with Wormtail though. That's the real drawback. Just creeping behind the doors. Narcissa frets about a mission the Dark Lord has assigned to her son. Snape makes the unbreakable vow, promising to look after Draco and help him complete his mission. And Draco's preparations begin soon as Harry, Ron, and Hermione learn and tailing him in Diagon Alley. He enters Borgen and Burks. Harry thinks that something must be up with his longtime nemesis. He tries to investigate on the Hogwarts Express, but Draco catches sight of Harry when the invisibility cloak slips, and he immobilizes Harry. Smashes his face with a vicious kick. Luna, dear sweet Luna. Um, they're experts. <sighs> She's the best. <laughs> Helps Harry off the train before it returns to London, and they head to the Great Hall for the welcome feast, where they learn that Slughorn will take over the position of Potions Master, while Snape will move to defense against the dark arts. Dun, dun, dun. In the first potions lesson of the year, which McGonagall makes Harry and Ron attend, after they derive far too much enjoyment from laughing at first years, Harry receives a battered old textbook, which he wins in a pseudo-wrestling match, which is full of scribbles. But the Half-Blood Prince's book contains useful advice 
and Harry brews an incredible potion to win a vial of Felix Felicis. Mm. Liquid luck as a prize. Throughout much of the school year, Harry balances two competing demands. First, the serious. He continues to monitor and be suspicious of Draco, especially after a curse necklace sends Katie Bell to the hospital and takes private lessons with Dumbledore, with whom he learns more about Voldemort's past. Ish. <laughs> kind of. He learns stuff. There's also the less serious stuff, like Quidditch, mm. which involves a still anxious Ron, and romance, which involves all manner of unrequited feelings and love potions and Ron and Lavender thrashing about like eels. Just oh, yeah, fucking in the stairwell, visible through oh, the window. It's yeah. like the people oh, yeah. in the hotel, what's it called? The standard hotel above the High Line yeah, in New York who would just throw it up against the glass for the passersby. It's to fucking notice. wild shit. Ron Weasley <laughs> in the hallway getting neck. <laughs> These strands intersect around Christmas time when Harry saves Ron's life after he ingests a love potion and then a glass of poisoned mead. And when Harry and Ginny fight together at the burrow as the Death Eaters literally blow up the Weasley family home. Much more on that to come. Aragog dies off screen. And at the small funeral ceremony, Harry, with a little help from Felix, convinces Slughorn to part with the Voldemort-centric memory that he has kept closely hidden for so long, and which is the heart of the reason that Dumbledore brought him back to Hogwarts. From this memory, Harry and Dumbledore learn about Voldemort's horcruxes. The year draws toward an end, but not before more drama arises. Harry and Malfoy duel in the bathroom. And Harry uses a new spell from the prince's book, Sectum Sempra, which makes Malfoy bleed profusely. Quite profusely. Harry's friends convince him that he must part with the book. And he and Ginny kiss afterward, because nothing arouses a popular witch more than the man she secretly desires using an illicit spell to almost murder a fellow student. It's very Hot! Very weird shit. (laughs) It's okay, though. Because Harry experiences no other fallout from this encounter, and he receives a message from Dumbledore that it's time for another mission. The two travel to an island in the middle of a lake inside a seaside cave, which apparently has some sort of importance to Tom Riddle, but we have no idea what it is in this movie. There's like a picture of the cave and his orphanage No idea what the importance of this cave is. There, Dumbledore imbibes a foul and feebling potion and then produces an impressive lasso of fire to save Harry from drowning at the hands of a horde of inferi. Which are also, we don't know what they are either. We have no idea what they are. Also, Dumbledore, basically fine after drinking the potion. He's okay. Thirsty, though. Just thirsty. He's like, Harry, get the water. (laughs) Pass me a Gatorade, my guy. (laughs) Yeah, what would happen if you just went with Gatorade? I've always wondered, this actually applies to the book, too. Yeah. But I've always wondered why Harry doesn't just try to use Aguamentia straight into Dumbledore's mouth. Like, almost like you would a hose. Like, right from the wand into his mouth. Like, would, like, a magical barrier prevent it? I don't know. Anyway. But Dumbledore is weak. And when he and Harry travel back to Hogwarts, directly to the top of the tower, despite no dark mark to lure them there, Malfoy arrives and disarms the headmaster. He has been tasked with killing Dumbledore, and though he seems unable to do it, Snape appears at the tower, looks Dumbledore in the eye, and casts Avada Kedavra the Killing Curse. Harry, who has not been immobilized in any way and was fully free to act and help his mentor this entire time. Just lurking. More on that later. Stands by as this all happens. But after Dumbledore dies, he chases after Sure. who easily bests him in a duel and reveals that he is the Half-Blood Prince. Harry recuperates after this awful night, realizes that the locket he and Dumbledore recovered from the cave is in fact a fake Horcrux, and starts discussing with his friends their plans for how to defeat Voldemort now. Jason. Yes. She's only interested in you because she thinks binge mode is the chosen one. 
but it is the chosen one. (laughs) Well, in that case, let's start choosing. If you'd like to hear us discuss every beat of J.K. Rowling's masterful Half-Blood Prince plot, we encourage you to check out the nine episodes we posted on the book. A lot of hours of Half-Blood Prince podcast in there for you. Please check it out. Today, we're going to focus on the film as both an adaptation and a standalone work by handing out some superlatives, some house points, dishing out seven awards, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, the big idea. The big idea of this film is... Uncovering the truth. The truth about Voldemort's background. The truth about what is going on. The truth about Draco's plot. All that is worked through in this movie, which is essentially more explicitly a mystery story, I think, than some of the other films. It's also bad. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to savage this movie, folks. Just off the top. Some big picture macro thoughts before we dive in. Do you like this movie? No, it's the worst. (laughs) It's the worst movie in the series. And that's very tough considering that it's quite easy to argue that this is the best book in the series. Mm -hmm. There are things that have been taken out, which fine. We both understand why it's necessary to take certain things out, characters, plot points, etc. But there's certain things in here that were kind of like the pillars of this book that were just removed. And then there's other stuff where it's like characters just acting not like themselves and doing the wrong shit. Right. So we wanted to quickly speak to, because we've seen your messages after the movie pods. Yes. And some of you have said, you know, doesn't seem like you guys like these movies very much. What's up with that? So we wanted to actually address that because we do like these movies. We love every part of this world and this experience. Mm -hmm. And of course, binge mode is a celebration. It's an obsessive. Yeah enterprise in exploring something we love. And the movies are part of that. Because we are so attached to the books, which obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, I think just by the very nature of that fandom and that attachment to the original stories, we're going to be more likely to nitpick the films. That doesn't mean that we don't appreciate the films. However, However. I do think, for me personally, and I think this is true for Jason too, there's the biggest chasm here between— how I feel about the book and how I feel about the movie. I was thinking, re-watching this to prepare for this podcast, and I've watched this film a million times. I've watched all these movies a million times. Again, I love the movies. They're fun. Yeah. They're fun to sit down and watch. I was thinking about this compared to Goblet, because we were certainly celebratory about some aspects of Goblet, but also, you know, quite critical of various aspects of the film. And I was thinking about how this film compares to Goblet, and specifically the things about each film that we critique. And I found myself almost feeling like more positive retroactively about Goblet through the lens of thinking about Prince because two things. One, I may have problems as someone who is obsessed with Goblet of Fire, the book, right? That's my favorite book of all time. So I may have problems with the changes that they made just because I don't think any changes should be made, right? Right. But I also understand rationally that that's not the way to make a film. You can't have a five-hour movie. Right. Right. I would love a five-hour movie, Uh, I think we all would, but we understand like the business. So— I might watch Goblet and harp on the changes, but I also can say I can appreciate the fact that somebody who has not read Goblet, someone who is not attached to the book, would watch that movie and say, this is a damn good, fun movie. This really works and functions successfully as a standalone film. I do not think Half-Blood Prince functions fully as a standalone film. And that's where some of the changes stand out in a different way with this film. 
the essence of the right. story. There's pillars that hold up the overarching narrative in the story that have just been removed wholesale. And it fundamentally shifts the meaning of the story and changes the motivation for the characters. It doesn't hold together as a living, breathing world or as a story that should have really devastating impact. Right. So I think some of the changes to, like, the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore, yeah. for example, or to even understanding why the film is called Half-Blood Prince, right. or to setting up the Horcrux plot for the seventh and eighth movies, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the book changes in our next category. But we just wanted to sort of establish our broad thoughts on the film and, again, there's a lot here to celebrate. There's a lot here that we love. We have a lot of fun watching the movie, but that's sort of how we compare it not only to the book, but to mm-hmm. the other films and how we relate to it. I think this is, I would put it this way. If I had one redo on any of the movies, this would be the one I'd want to redo. Yeah, I, and so it's less about the fact that I don't like it, which is not true. I, there's plenty about it to enjoy and more about the fact that it just feels like so much that could have been there and could have been fully realized based off of the book just didn't come together in the way that it could have. And so it feels like maybe more of a missed opportunity yeah. than anything else. I'm going to attempt to reverse engineer why some of these choices were made. I think that Yates and the production maybe looked at their core stars and thought they're flowering into these really charming and attractive young people. Let's base everything around them. And then the magic stuff and the mission, not to say it's secondary, but it kind of gets pushed to the side. Like the stuff that really pops off the screen in this is a lot of the interpersonal stuff. Mm -hmm. Harry and Ron... And Hermione catching up at the burrow over that like little burning piece yeah, of profit paper. That stuff is great. The stuff that ends up not working is like when the overarching story kind of butts into their relationship. And it feels like that's where the corners were cut. You mm-hmm. know, the stuff with Dumbledore who acts, I don't want to be uncharitable, but it's the toughest Gambon performance, I think. There's no warmth at all to Dumbledore. He's just kind of low-key a dick in this. <laughs> I think it's notable that if you search Half-Blood Prince rom-com, there are like trailer right. cuts of this movie just as a rom-com. That's and it's the, like great. That's the best super stuff. Super compelling, really, really endearing. Yes. And that stuff in the film functions not only well, but at a really high level, actually. Yes. It's the core mythology of the story that doesn't come together quite as successfully. However, in terms of the big idea, uncovering the truth is not as central of a focus as it is in the book, but it is still ultimately what every A, B, C, D plot line in the film drives toward in some level. As you said, the memories, Tom Mm. Riddle's past. We don't get as much of it as we do in the book, but that is what Harry and Dumbledore's lessons are about. That's what the memories are about. That is the portal that is going to allow them to figure out the key to beating Voldemort. The Horcruxes themselves, the fact that they exist, how many might there be? We don't get a discussion about what they are, in this film, but the specificity, not just why did Harry live, again, that question that we talked about in the books a lot, why didn't Voldemort die? How was he tethered to the earth after his body was destroyed? This is the movie that tries to answer that question. Slughorn's role in all of it, that mystery, that I think is quite successfully done in the film, establishing a character instantly. Broadbent is great in this. He's fabulous. Making you care about him not only as someone who charms you the way that maybe like Trelawney does, but also like Trelawney to say this person has some sort of core connection to the overall plot and mythology of the story. I'm eager to find out how and why. Draco's plot, again, to be able to understand not only what he is doing, 
but why, what yeah. his motivations are to make you feel some level of empathy while also fearing him. And then, of course, Snape, you know, Snape's identity as the half-blood prince, uncovering that truth and uncovering what Harry thinks he will, of course, be proven wrong. That's coming in Deathly Hallows, too. But what he thinks is the truth of Snape's ultimate allegiance. Mm. And then, of course, uncovering what Harry's role will be moving forward once Dumbledore dies, that Harry has to be the one to assume the mantle, that hero's burden of saying, I'm going to see this through now. I think that uncovering the truth is the one area where the core plot, the core mythology, and the more successful teen angst elements all come together under that umbrella because— They're uncovering the truth of their own feelings about each other, too. You know, Harry recognizing how he feels about Ginny, Ron and Hermione, even though they're not quite able to break through and say it clearly to each other, uncovering how they feel about each other. So the questions, of course, are which of those truths are uncovered successfully? Which gets us to category number two, the best book to movie change and the worst book to movie change. We are going to start with best so yeah, that we can inject some positivity and celebration here. What are some of your favorite book-to-movie changes? Harry pulling a legitimate 10 mm-hmm. out on the streets of Lewinjing <laughs> I thought was great. The teen drama stuff, generally speaking, those changes are fantastic. One of them I thought that was really effective was Ron's little speech about he sees Ginny snogging. And he's got to say, well, you know, I've got to shun that guy just on principle, don't I? I mean, you know, that's my sister. I thought that was really effectively done to kind of underline the reasons why Harry would be hesitant to pursue his feelings with Ginny. I thought that was really great. That was great. I really liked everything that Luna is involved in Mm -hmm. in this movie. It's a very small detail, but when she finds Harry— which is a change. Mm-hmm. She finds up. She's got her little glasses on, <laughs> and you see from her point of view yeah. through the glasses. And the reason she knows he's there is she sees the rack spurts <laughs> swarming by his head. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Which we've kind of buried <laughs> the lead, guys. The rack spurts are real. <laughs> she can see them. Yeah, I believe everything that Luna I says do is too. true. Honestly, um, this again falls under the category of the teen drama stuff. But the chemistry between our three core characters is fantastic in this movie. There's when Slughorn is like, oh, that's okay. You guys don't have a book. Just go to the cabinet and get another one. Yeah. They open the cabinet and then Harry and Ron have this little wrestling match for the book. And then, you know, like Harry comes away with it and Ron comes away with the cleaner, the nicer one, the supposedly nicer one. And they kind of like he slaps at him. That was so charming and really was like. Oh, these are friends. They like each other. I also had that moment on Best Changes. Yeah. Because in the book, Harry's just handed the prince's book. And so I like the idea of him having some active hand in whether or not that happened. And then specifically, when you consider Ron's character and his defining character traits, like the idea that in that moment, he really thinks he won. You know, he's used to always having secondhand things. He doesn't get to have the shiny new thing. And he's like, I got the cover that isn't tattered, the binding that isn't torn. But then, of course, he doesn't have the prince's help all year. And I really like thinking about that through, like, the lens of Ron thinking he won, but then really realizing Harry actually got the better thing ultimately. And in terms of what that symbolizes about their relationship, I like that a lot. I like the fact that they gave Harry, like, an actual libido in this you know he's out here trying to hook up with girls at the cafe he's checking out Ramilda Vane he's like a regular teenage kid to the point where Dumbledore's like you and Hermione right what's up 
awful. That tough was truly is a truly tough moment. <laughs> but you know, like Harry strikes me as sometimes a bit too chaste in the books, mm-hmm. perhaps unrealistically so. Although you understand it because he doesn't want to expose people to danger. Right, By danger. I mean, is cock. <laughs> He doesn't want to expose people to danger. Right. And um, he's also not sure what their motivations are in the book, right. why they like him. And I also had the Romilda thing as a best change. Yeah. Because while I find Harry's awkwardness around the idea of romance in the book, like totally winning and very charming, I do love the idea in the movie that he's just like, I'm a fucking horn dog and I really want to get laid. And like yeah. when Hermione's like, Romilda is after you, he looks at her and he says, Really? Yeah, I know. Really? <laughs> And he's just so into it. And I love that. I think that feels very true to life for how a teenage boy would behave. 100% agree. And the Ron's love potion scene, which is pretty similar to the book, but different in some important ways. But I thought that was really winning. I think for me, and this is sad, but I kind of think this is the best Rupert Grint movie. It's a great Rupert Grint movie. Like he is. All of them are great Rupert Grint movies. I know, but I love him. I think he's really good in this. And also like. (laughs) handsome in this yeah i think he's great i just love him yeah i think he captures you know listen we like to dunk on ron here but this is a pro ron podcast it's a pro ron isaac's shaking his head but this is a pro ron podcast and i think rupert grant captures the essence of what we love about ron like that oddity that levity just the best pal you yeah. want to hang with there's a scene on game day on match day big quidditch match day mm-hmm. ron entering the dining hall and we get it from his perspective right. That really brought out the, oh, this is a school aspect of it. You know, people talking shit to him and like the noise of the cafeteria and his nervousness. I love that little change. So David Yates took over the film franchise with the fifth film, Order Mm -hmm. of the Phoenix, and he maintains it the rest of the way and is also shepherding the Fantastic Beasts franchise. And I think that one of the things he is most successful with is the British boarding school aspect of it all. What is it like to grow up in that world? These are not just your classmates. They're not just your friends. They're everything. They're your family. They're your teammates. They're your classmates. They're your friends. They're the people you're fucking. Like, all of it wrapped up in one. He he has an ability to tap into that really well. That stuff was great. What about you? Some of the other bests. This is one that I have as a best. I'm pretty sure you hate this, so So we can have a little fight about it. Okay. Caveat. It is absurd in a time of war that this happens. I acknowledge that. However— I like that no one at the borough knows Harry's coming because it feels very true to Dumbledore to me that he would just deposit him there without telling anyone that he's doing it. And I like that the film acknowledges that when Molly says, oh, that man. Like, I like that part of it. That's cute. That's fine with me. (laughs) My issue is, as you said, it's a time of war. The Weasleys are very, very publicly on the front lines of this thing. And in the book, we get the overt, let's run through all the security measures. Yeah, the Molly Molly wobbles, wobbles, the whole thing. And you can just waltz up to it. (laughs) And the Death Eaters can just apparate around it. And there is, I will not defend that part. There's zero security (laughs) in this home. Yeah, that part. That's my issue with it. That part is bad, and I agree with you. But if you're able to accept that that's the choice they've made, then once Harry is on the grounds and inside, I like yeah, the, I like the, like just even the shot of it, them all leaning down yeah. and saying, oh, Harry, yeah. Harry, I think I would know. I don't know. It's just cute. Next, I like Bellatrix mm. using the word coward with Snape as a trigger for him opting into the unbreakable vow, obviously not getting The don't call me a coward scene at the end is devastating. I wanted every single moment of that. But 
because we don't get that, I'm glad that we have some version of it. And I do like the idea that hearing this word that we as book readers know is a trigger for him, know pushes him as someone who is acting so bravely in in ways that are not seen and understood, that he would respond to hearing that. And in general— I like that we have Bellatrix in so much of the movie. Yeah. You know, in the book, we get her at Spinner's End, obviously, and then she's not present in the story the rest of the way, and it makes sense to me that from the film's perspective, they would choose to have a character who's already established with the audience. I like riding with Bellatrix as a face you know. I mean, they yeah. barely work to establish Fenrir Greyback as a character. It's yeah. really all carried through Bellatrix, and while I would like to get all of the characters, I think that that's a choice that makes sense to me. Related, Narcissa. I like that she goes with Draco to Borgen and Burks in the movie. That makes sense to me. Mm. Obviously, his feeling of supreme isolation in the book is a huge propulsive force for why he's making these choices and why he's behaving in this way. But the other reason is that he's doing it because he feels that his life and his mother's life are in jeopardy. Like, we will learn, especially over the course of Cursed Child, that he really resented his father and the burden that his father's choices placed on him. But— He does want to save his mother, and him choosing to evade her and cut her out was always one of the few things in the book that I was like, I wonder why he's doing this. You know, and even though I liked what it said about his character, it did force me to ask questions. And so her being there with him, going to Snape, asking for help, knowing what Voldemort's plan is, and then being there with him by his side to help see it through, that made sense. Another small one, you mentioned Luna already, but I like kind of the entire train sequence and the way that plays out. Quibbler. (laughs) Quibbler, she's great. Harry using the darkness powder. It's shocking at first because obviously using the darkness powder is a thing that Malfoy does in Half-Blood Prince the book, but it actually does feel like the kind of sort of reckless reactionary Mm. choice that Harry would make when he's really focused on getting something done, kind of no matter the cost. And then the savagery of what Malfoy is actually saying to him, the way that he stamps on his face. I think that's actually all quite well done. That's fairly true to the script. But cutting out the slug club there, saving that for later in the film and just focusing that fully on Harry, like tracking Malfoy, that works well. And then Luna being the one to find Harry instead of Tonks, I think is a smart choice because there's just not enough time to introduce the entire Tonks plot. And while I miss it, and while it is certainly jarring to all of a sudden just realize that she and Lupin have been, like, fucking for months because she's just like, well, no, we got to get home. And you're like, what? You got to get where? Who? You two? What? Despite how jarring that is, because of the other cuts and the other changes that they make, you have to be willing to let go of the Tonks thing. And every moment with Harry and Luna is, like, a precious gift. And so I like that we get more of that there early on. I like also that we see Dumbledore with the diary yeah, that at his was... desk and then the ring, especially because, and this part is not something I like, but the film does not spend a lot of time talking about the Horcruxes. Right. And so something small like that, a visual moment where these objects are clearly linked, helps establish that part of the right. canon. It is really imperative given how little discussion there is later on. I also like that we know the necklace and the mead were meant for Dumbledore. Right. There's no mystery about who the target is. I like this and I don't like this. I like the fact that it's pretty direct what the plot is. Now, who is behind it is the question, but it's, as the viewer, there's not that much mystery as to what the target is. Like, as you say, they're saying immediately that this is about Dumbledore and the vanishing cabinet is brought up pretty quickly Mm -hmm. as the thing that Draco is interested in. Right. That part I don't like. 
it's half and half. It, some of it is, I understand it's expedient and it works in a visual storytelling medium. And the rest of it is like, okay, but then if we know that this is the case, how come more isn't being done? Right. So that's a very fair point. The reason that I think it's a, an effective choice for the film is there's basically not time for the, oh, well, who could be in danger here? Right, right. It's like the fact that we know it's Dumbledore, first of all, it primes you for the end. Right. And I will say one thing that they do do quite effectively is give you the sense that Death Eaters are trying to get into Hogwarts every day. Right. All the time. Yeah. There's that little scene of the, uh, you know, apparating Death yeah, Eaters yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like bouncing off the magical wards of the school. So there is a sense that, of course, Dumbledore would be a target of the Death Eaters and that they are probably trying to kill him 24-7. Right. And he does have what I think is a pretty effective welcome feast speech. That line in particular, every day, <laughs> yeah. every hour, this very yes. minute, perhaps dark forces attempt to penetrate this castle's wall. But in the end, their greatest weapon is you. That's kind of a chilling right. moment. And then he's like, good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess here's the boil down essence of it. Knowing a Dumbledore really elevates the stakes. Thinking it could be anyone would dilute the stakes over the course of the film. And so I think that's a smart choice for them. Mm-hmm. I love, absolutely love, 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 laugh, laugh, being there when Ron says Hermione's name in the hospital. Also just lav coming in. Hermione. Where is he? <laughs> that whole scene is like, my one one. Perfection. It's incredible. We're going to talk about this in best uh, yes, quotes. I have several of these in best quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way the film uses the birds, yeah, Malfoy's birds. I don't like, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, I don't like that we know specifically that he's using the cabinets. But since they've made that choice, mm-hmm. the birds, it's a great way to show us what Draco is trying to do, specifically the magic that he is attempting to facilitate, the fix that he is trying to make. And a great way to build tension throughout the course of the film. The apple, a little piece missing. The bird gets it to go away, but then it comes back and it's dead. Well, what does it mean if it's dead? It means it Mm. isn't working. What does it mean when we hear the chirp and it comes out when Harry opens it? It means he's fixed it at last. I think that's a pretty effective technique. That's a real oh shit moment when the bird flies out. It's like he did it. He solved it. I also like the Francis Fish story. Yeah, I liked it too. This is because Broadbent is a fucking master. He owns the scene, yeah. Crushes this. Yeah, he's fabulous. I feel compelled to state, I'm broken record with this stuff. The fact that I'm picking this as a best change doesn't mean that I don't like the way it is in the book. I think the way it is done in the book is flawless. And of right. course, I would love for it to just be done that way in the film. But given that there's a change, I think the Fish story is really lovely. It's just really lovely. Here's his quote. It was a student who gave me Francis. One spring afternoon, I discovered the bowl on my desk with just a few inches of clear water in it, and floating on the surface was a flower petal. As I watched, it sank, but just before it reached the bottom, it transformed into a wee fish. This line in particular is gorgeous. It was beautiful magic, wondrous to behold. The way he says that was such emotion in his voice. You feel, you understand fully how fond he was of Lily from Mm -hmm. that one moment. The flower petal had come from a lily, your mother. The day I came downstairs, the day the bowl was empty. That's the day your mother, and then he trailed off. And we understand that the bowl emptied when Lily died. And part of the reason I like that, not only because it so effectively conveys for us and for Harry the true affection that Slughorn felt for Lily and the impact that she had on people, which we don't get as much of in general in the films as in the books, it feels similar to... One of the most important moments in the book that is not in the film, which is 
Dumbledore's spell lifting on Harry when mm-hmm. Dumbledore dies. Like, understanding that aspect of how magic works, that this presence, this force in your life that came from this other yes. person's magic ceases to exist I, when that person does. I'm glad you said that because one of the things that struck me, especially with the scene with Hermione after seeing Lav and Ron make out <laughs> and she goes to another part of the castle and has conjured the birds— mm-hmm. And I felt it again when at the burrow with Harry, Ron, and Hermione, when they've got that little piece of profit paper just yeah. kind of burning. I just like when they do magic. Yeah. And this is so simple, That's right? That's such a good point. Yeah. But it's so wonderful when they do magic. Yes. Because it really makes you feel like, and, and the casualness with which they do it. It's just, this is what their lives this are. This is what their, right. yeah, this is what their reality is. This is what their lives are. It's so stupid to say, but I just wish there was more magic in the movies. I totally agree with you. And it's one of the things, particularly because one of the sacrifices they have to make for yes, time is speech. Mm-hmm. So we get so much more nonverbal magic in the movies than right. we do in the books because it's really just about, from the film's perspective, right. the spectacle of yeah. it. You understanding that something is happening yeah. here. It's crackling in the air around you. And so a moment like this where the magic is explained yeah, to us, I love where that. we get to really love think it. about it, is beautiful. Now, you know, of course, the ensuing response from Harry in that scene where we don't get the iconic you can't give me a memory line mm-hmm. and where he's basically just like, she'll have died in vain if you don't give me this, yes. you fucker. Less good. But I love the Francis part. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Finally, a couple other quick good moments. Mm-hmm. Harry touching the Horcruxes and us getting that reactionary chain yes. of response that visually links him to these other Horcruxes. And the line from Dumbledore, one of Gambon's good moments in the movie actually, leaves traces. Like you feel in that yeah. moment, if you know what you're looking for, that he's looking at Harry and he, he knows, yeah. right? That's one of the few moments where we get the Harry as a Horcrux clue in the film so effectively, and I like it. I also quite like that we get to see Snape and Dumbledore speaking directly, not through the lens of Hagrid reporting to Harry and co what he overheard, because I love my guy Hagrid, an all-time fave, not the most reliable narrator. We have to see Snape and Dumbledore speaking before the death. We have to. I liked this scene in theory. I didn't like it in execution. Mm -hmm. It was tough to be like, oh, Harry overheard this. These are two master wizards. And like, here's a kid walks up the tower and they're like, oh, Here's the, Did you just overhear this? Here's the only reason I'm okay with it. Because Hagrid overhears them. Mm. That same conversation okay. in the book. That's the only reason I'm fine with it. Otherwise, I definitely would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but that moment when we get to hear Snape say, have you ever considered that you ask too much, that you take too much for granted? That is yeah. obviously imperative in terms of the yeah. overall Dumbledore arc, but also in terms of planting a seed for the film viewer yes. that Snape and Dumbledore are in cahoots. There are not a lot of other moments <laughs> where we get that so overtly. That is really, really imperative, and I like that we get it directly. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Dell. Give me that, Dell! The Dell XPS 13, that is, with an Intel Core i7 processor, is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With a lifelike color... Brilliant sound clarity and smooth streaming. Gotta have it! Dell Cinema Technology makes the XPS 13 the perfect laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Call 800-BY-DELL to learn more or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. And now back to binge mode. How about some of the worst? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh! Where to begin, where to begin, where to begin? Should we start with the big stuff? Yeah. Let's start with the big stuff. Okay. There's a lot. 
let's start because they're so integral to the story, the lack of memories. Yeah. The gaunt family memory, gone. No morphin. No morphin. No Hepzibah Smith. You don't understand. No Lord Voldemort's request, no the job Lord, interview. You <laughs> understand nothing of Riddle's background, of yeah. the things that drive him, of his attraction to the cave, to collecting icons and objects of the founders of Slytherin. Right. You don't understand that, and that is so important to drawing a through line of Riddle to Voldemort. Right. You get none of it. That's my number one. That's also my number one. Yeah, it was brutal. It's three things. It's the omission of all the other memories, yeah. which is the spine of the story. There is no structure of the story absent those. It's what is in the memories that we do see, mm-hmm. which I think is as troubling. We spent, I believe, something like 45 minutes just on the secret riddle chapter, just on the orphanage chapter. He becomes a cardboard cutout right. without that stuff. He's just evil. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, it's positioned so that the line about speaking to Snape's is like the hammer that's supposed right. to give you the chill and make you understand how evil he is. Whereas in the book, it's like, I wasn't as worried about that yeah. as his instincts for cruelty. Yes. And how, you know, we don't get, for example, that the, the crucial line, I knew I was special always. I knew there was something from the book. In Slughorn's first memory, mm-hmm. this is confounding to me, we don't hear the word Horcrux. I actually don't understand how that functions within the story. Like, for Harry to then go to Slughorn and literally say, I can't remember. Right. I read about it, the thing. Can you tell me about it? It's like they need to be operating off the word. The point is that Dumbledore has been working to solve the mystery of the Horcrux, not to learn that the Horcrux is the thing. Yeah. And so that's like a fundamental shift that I kind of can't get over that one. It's very, very, (laughs) very tough. And then to your larger point, which I agree with, the memories as the structure for Half-Blood Prince serve two functions. One, it's about the Horcruxes and moving forward in the story to defeat Voldemort. Yes. It's about understanding what they are, how many there are, and what they are. We don't get any discussion about what they are, by the way. There's no conversation about the cup, about Nagini about something of Ravenclaw's or Gryffindor's. Like, what is Harry supposed to be acting on at the end of this movie other than R.A.B.? Right. But the other point of the memories and of Harry studying with Dumbledore is to understand who Tom Riddle was. That's the whole mission. And thus, why he chose to become this person. Why does that matter? It's because this is a story about the choices that we make and the consequences that those choices have and what those choices say about who we are. No exploration of the choices that he made or why. Who he is fundamentally as a person, that moment with Hermione in the book where she says, well, how else will you understand his weaknesses if you don't understand who he is? That's the essence of it. And that's missing from the films. And so that is extremely tough. Very tough. Here's my next one. I put it second because in terms of the plot of the film, nothing is more important than the watered down execution of the memories. However, I think there is a case that this is the worst decision that has ever been made in any of the films. I can't wait for this. Dumbledore not freezing Harry atop the tower. Oh my god. Is I'm gonna roll some of my other Dumbledore yeah. Gambon critiques into this, but please, yes, that is awful. This is an unforgivable choice. Yes, there's a Dumbledore aspect of it, which I'll let you field. For me, it's about what it says about Harry. Yes. He's so, a true coward in this the, moment. Right. His courage, <laughs> the choices that he makes are his defining characteristics. Nothing will stop him from trying to save the people that he loves, yeah. no matter the cost. Right. He would die in that moment. Absolutely. Gladly. Would gladly he, die yes. to try to save Dumbledore. And we're supposed to believe that he would stand there because Dumbledore told him to? No. no. 
it's not enough in the book even just that he's frozen, that he's hit with a full body yeah. bind curse. He's under the invisibility cloak. He's not even part of this experience. He has been ripped out of it. The choice has been deprived. The agency has been ripped away from him. And that's imperative because his agency is everything about who yeah. he is. Then the result is that we get the line from him, quote, I did nothing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Legitimately, you did nothing. I can't it's, accept that. It really because undercuts, Harry is not a character who yeah. does nothing. It undercuts fundamentally what that character is, who he is, and what he's been established to be over five right. books and five movies. It also robs us of that thing I love. Again, we already talked about this with Francis, but he doesn't want to believe that Dumbledore is dead. Right. He cannot accept it, and yet when he feels Dumbledore's spell lift. He knows, right, he knows that it's immediately that There's just no way he can deny it to himself yeah. anymore. And that's a, such a powerful moment. And Harry, who is about to assume that mantle, that hero's burden, to be on the front lines of waging this war, for him to feel true helplessness. You feel his rage rippling off the page in that chapter. And because his terror. It, yeah. He feels helpless. And, he grew up feeling helpless. And it's just really hard to generate that when the guy was just, you know, kind of lurking under the steps watching through like few slats of wood as his father figure and mentor and last protector is hurled off the tower. So I have one theory sure. about why they did this. I think a lot of it is about this moment with Snape. When Snape comes up to Harry and we see that he's there and Harry looks at him and Snape puts his finger to his lip and says, you know, shh, right. basically, I've got this. Right. And that really for maybe the first time ever in the film universe, Harry puts his trust in Snape. Right. And then that is ripped away so fully. And what that would cost him to say, oh, my God, I really allowed myself to think he was on my side. The problem is, and this is coming up on my list, I'll just do it right here. Also absent from the film, Trelawney's reveal about Snape being the right. one who shared the prophecy right. and Harry and Dumbledore's true blow-up fight right. about why Dumbledore trusts Snape. So if you don't have that, then that moment doesn't work. Yeah. Then that moment can't be the excuse for the choice. It's very tough. So some of my Dumbledore critiques, I think this is the toughest Gambon performance. He's so cold as Dumbledore. There's no warmth to him. There's no twinkling this no, I'm with you. That line. I really miss that line. It, it, you miss it terribly. Yeah. Let's start at the very beginning, his appearance in the movie. Harry is kicking it to this <laughs> dime barista. <laughs> dime. She is smoking. A 15 <laughs> on a 10 scale. What time do you? 11 o'clock. Yeah. Jumps at it. Yeah. Wants to see him afterwards. Yeah. Dumbledore appears on the train platform. In front of the divine magic sign. Which, in front of the divine magic sign as Harry is like waiting for her to get off. Yeah. And Harry, Harry was waiting to get off. Harry's you know waiting I mean. to get off. And he casts Phallus Protego, cock blocking <laughs> Harry pretty effectively. And when Harry is like going to object a little bit, Dumbledore says, do as I say. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> we talk about, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire all the time? Yeah. This is underrated as a truly fucking bad line. <laughs> Do as I say. It's just not that their relationship. That is not their relationship. That is not what Dumbledore would say. That is not a thing that would happen in this story. It's truly bad. And that's like basically the first thing that he says to Harry in this is do as I say. Awful. Can I give you a related one? Please. It's only a couple minutes after that. Sure. It actually is a couple seconds after that. Sure. When they apparate yeah. and they get to the village, charming village, right. Dumbledore says, Harry, I assume right now 
you must be wondering why I brought you here. Am I right? And Harry says, actually, sir, after all these years, I just sort of go with it. I would argue that there is not another exchange in any of the films that better sums up missing the point entirely. Like Harry begging Dumbledore for information. Yeah. Feeling so misled and betrayed and hurt and wounded by the choices Dumbledore has made to not tell him things. And then the hurdle that they clear with that in the last prophecy at the end of Order of the Phoenix, and then those moments at the beginning of Prince, at the beginning of their lessons, when Dumbledore is saying, in essence, I'm now I'm going to really tell you everything. And Harry's like, my guy, what the fuck? I thought you just did. And then even now, we as readers know he still isn't telling him everything. That is so crucial to their overall arc and to their relationship and to the push-pull there. When they challenge each other, how, why, what Dumbledore shares, and when. And Harry carrying that resentment is crucial. How that feeds into his recklessness, which is a core part of his personality. So for him to just shrug this and yeah, say, Yeah, sure, okay. No, yeah. yeah like, okay. I just, I'm just <laughs> not, you know, you don't tell me things. I've stopped wondering. Like, that fundamentally misses the point, That's not right. only of Harry's character, but of their relationship. My next one after that, and it's related, cutting Dumbledore's funeral. That's next for me, too. This character is the organizing principle behind the story, essentially. He's the mastermind behind a lot of the stuff that happens. Right. Harry's last protector, his father figure is a father figure to... All the students at this school is a titanic character, not just within our series, but in literature writ large. Yeah. He is a literary titan and an icon. And you're not going to give him a send-off? Leave aside the fact that, okay, you know, you got to make it a movie and it's blah, 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 blah. The thing that confounds me is you read the funeral chapter, White Two. Man, does that stand out as vibrant and jumps off the page and you're thinking, man, I can see this in my mind. Everything is so clear. You see the mer people in the lake. You see the centaurs firing their arrows. You see Hagrid leaping. It's like everything in that is so rich and tactile. And you read that and you're like, why wouldn't you want to put that on the screen? Right. Everything about it is incredible. I agree with you completely. A visual masterpiece in text. The moment when he is entombed, not only that visual of the phoenix and the smoke, but what that symbolizes about him becoming one with Hogwarts, with the grounds, that is so potent. Here's my guess. Sure. (laughs) While there are those visually potent moments, let's say something like 85% of the final two chapters, the phoenix lament and the white tomb, takes place inside Harry's head. That's the only explanation, especially when you get to the fact that Bill, Floor, this is coming up on our list, but characters who are so central to the emotional punch, the gut punch at the end of that book are not in the story. Sure. So sure. when you look at what is even there to work with at the end, now, the parts that are in Harry's head, I don't want to be dramatic here, but are some of the most important sentences to me ever written by anyone ever in the history of time. And so being deprived of those is absolutely gutting. Also, you reassess it based on what is to come in Hallows. So that's where, like, again, not establishing what the Horcrux hunt is going to look like and what the other objects are. But then also, like, we are going to see Voldemort break open Dumbledore's tomb to get the Elder Wand. That is going to happen. So show us the tomb. Yes. Set it up. Yeah, it's wild. What they replace the funeral with is... Everybody's standing around and they raise their wands. Right. Is that a thing? 
Okay. That's a thing? What, right. what is that? Okay. That's what we do in the Wizarding World? It's like everybody puts their wand up? That's want, a want thing? To be clear. What is that? I want to be clear. I'm not defending the lack of the funeral. I agree with you completely. The funeral should be in there. It is a beautiful, beautiful and crucial scene. It should be in the movie. However, I do find that moment touching. It's it's <laughs> cheesy and there's a little bit to it. It's effective in and of itself. My thing is like, that is not enough. Right. That is I want that to be the enough. precursor to the funeral. Right. You actually can't believe the movie ends when it ends. Yeah. And also like Harry's, one of the last things he says is, you forget how beautiful this place that's, is. That's his last line. What? It, I never realized how beautiful this place was. Come on. <laughs> Dumbledore just died. What? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in that same conversation where they're looking out upon the grounds, Hermione, in essence, establishes that she and Ron will be accompanying him by saying, like, you're being kind of dumb, yeah. my guy. That's fine because Harry being thick is established canon and right. Hermione calling him out on that is established canon. But that moment in the book where Ron says, we'll be there, Harry, and you just know that these people will never leave his side and that when they do, they'll come right back, like, is so crucial. And so I just wanted to feel that moment from the perspective fully of love and friendship, unwavering loyalty, and less from, like, you need us because you can't solve it on your own, <laughs> which <laughs> felt a little cold in comparison. We're missing, obviously, chapters at the end. We're also missing some at the beginning. We don't oh, yeah, get the, the other minister. The fact that there's no ministry, no other minister, no Scripture ministry. not in the film. The previous film ended with Voldemort dramatically invading the Ministry of Magic. Right. And then we have no update on what the current state of the ministry is. Like, what happened with Fudge? What's going on? That's just pushed completely to the side in a way that feels absolutely jarring. I think that, you know, seeing shots of Death Eater carnage, you know, tearing down the Millennial Bridge, things of that nature. But it's just so special in the book to see how the Wizarding and Muggle governments interact. That's where if you do the 10-hour Amazon, yeah. you know, or Netflix treatment, you just spend 20 minutes in the opening episode luxuriating in that conversation. And then what you really miss is the Dumbledore dunk fest on the Dursleys. Fucking great. Like, them getting owned for neglecting Harry for his entire life is a really important moment. Yeah. That's important. And also because I think it shows you that warmth that you were looking for. Even though he's being so cruel to the Dursleys, it's warmth for Harry and his desire to protect Harry by calling these people out and how they treated him. And it's also some, he's actually showing indirectly some culpability for his own decision to place him there. Yeah. And that's an important moment. Let's talk about the borough. Let's talk about the borough. The borough's got to have some security charms on it, guys. Don't you think? Like, it's an important wizarding household. Yeah. Also, why did we burn it down? The thing about lighting the borough on fire, a couple things. One, uh, that's not how apparition works. Not at all. Two, why once the borough is on fire, is everyone standing around? Hey, guys, put it out. <laughs> We're a bunch of wizards and witches here right. with wands. Yeah, so fix it. Why are we staring at this and weeping as if we can't immediately put it right. out and, and fix then, it? That's the thing. It actually has no consequence. Right. Because you can just fix it. So what does that even represent? It's like, okay, we're in danger. They can get to us in our homes. But to your earlier point, that shouldn't be the case because of the security measures. Ah, very tough. Yeah. Like, very put it tough. out. Why are also, we? how come Harry and Ginny can run through the ring of fire, but oh, none on. of the adults can? That was stupid. <laughs> I don't get that. Also, why are we even running into the wheat field after them? Make them come to you. Well, Why are you chasing them? Harry, of course, wants fine. to chase yeah, Bellatrix fine. because right. she killed Sirius. I killed Sirius Black. The other thing is, let me just say one thing. Like, so in the book, mm-hmm. 
Harry and Hagrid put out the fire in the hut Mm -hmm. and then Hagrid's like, yeah, you know, we'll fix this up. Not an issue. Mm -hmm. And then you make a movie in which the burrow gets burned down and everybody's standing around wondering, like, should we call the fire department? What's going to happen now? We can do magic, guys. (laughs) And the other side can do magic, too. (laughs) Got to get the burrow ready for the wedding between Fleur and Bill, two characters who are not in this movie. What do we think about Harry seeing Draco touch the vanishing cabinet and then having a conversation with Mr. Weasley confirming that it is, in fact, the vanishing cabinet? Here's the only defense I have for it. Vanishing cabinet is not in the film franchise before this point. Have to introduce it. Right. Have to explain what it is and how it works. Of course. Okay, fine. (sighs) Harry obsessing over what Malfoy is doing, what he is working on. And where he is, and then once they realize it's the room of requirement, trying to get in there, trying to catch him. It doesn't overtake him Mm -hmm. in that way in the film. And if he knows that it's the vanishing cabinet, once he has that information, he needs to talk to Dumbledore about it. He has to say something. But he's just like, okay. So that's another thing where it's like the end result of this shouldn't have even been possible because characters had enough information. In the book, the fact that Harry could have pieced together the Vanishing Cabinet plot because he has been in it in Morgan and Burke's, knows about the one at Hogwarts, walks by it in the Room of Requirement when he's hiding the book. That's what makes it so agonizing that he isn't able to piece it together. Him actually having the information in the film and then not piecing it together is a different sort of failure that I think is ultimately not as gutting and compelling. It's just like, did you not have enough conversations about this? Speaking of the Room of Requirement, in the entire Sectum Semper sequence, we get a few changes. Snape doesn't ask Harry to bring him the book. Tough stuff. I want more Half-Blood Prince Snape connections there. But more importantly, how does Harry hide the book? Ginny takes him to the room of requirement where they share their first kiss, which can stay hidden up there, too, if you'd like, Jason. Right. What is this? I guess they just needed to kill two birds with one stone, you know? Like, they were just like, well, let's combine these things, and we also need to do this, and this serves the interpersonal responsibility and it also, like, moves the story forward and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, it's nonsense. Now, I will say, their kiss and Harry's use of sectum stempera pretty proximate to each other in the book. Yeah. But not literally the same. Right. Not not literally five minutes after Harry almost kills a kid. Right. I also just think the way the kiss happens in the book, in the common room, where they're just so overcome with their lust for each other that they basically can't contain it another moment longer is so fitting and so perfect. And then, of course, it leads to the uproar with the school being obsessed about the fact that they're together. It's like, are they together? Let me give you a small one that's kind of like a nitpick that's adjacent to this. When Harry takes Luna to the slug party, yeah. she goes, I've never been to this part of the castle, at least not while awake. Mm-hmm. And they're walking past the room of requirement hallway. Like, what do you mean? You've spent all last year there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. It's a great point. One thing on the kiss that I do like is that it leads to the Ron saying, did you and Ginny do it then line, which is very funny. That's good. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I really, really miss Dumbledore not pushing Harry on why the prophecy doesn't matter. I mean, I the really whole, yeah, the, all of that. that. All of that is very tough. Dumbledore's this is beyond anything I imagined line mm-hmm. after the Horcrux memory. Is it? You've literally been working to solve this nonstop. You have multiple Horcruxes. You're on in the process of finding another one. And you know what you suspect about Harry so this is not beyond anything that you've imagined. In fact, the fact that you've imagined it and have been working this hard to undo it is literally the point. Also, relatedly, him saying that Horcruxes could be anything, the most commonplace of objects, 
a ring, for example, or a book. Why make a change like that? There's no reason to make a change like that. There's a wide spectrum of changes. And the two that piss me off the most are the ones that compromise something elemental about the story. And then something that doesn't need to happen and serves no function. A change just for the sake of a change. He's describing porkies here, not horcruxes. This is the inverse of what a horcrux is. What is the function of this line? What is the point of it? Other than to account for the fact that you're not going to have a scene where you run through what the horcruxes are and explain Voldemort's lust for and connection to strongholds of ancient magic, his obsession with the founders. But that's so central to who he is, the importance that he places on himself. Like, he's not going to make a fucking shoe a horcrux. (laughs) And also, Harry is the one in the book who's like, the diary wasn't special. And and Dumbledore is the one who points out how wrongheaded thinking about it that way is. What a tome that proved that Tom Riddle was Slytherin's heir would signify. How important that would be. Ah! We're missing a lot of key lines. Yeah. A lot of the key lines in the cave, I'm with you, the death and darkness line. Dumbledore just being like, I can apparate. Bonus to be me. Very tough. The battle at the school yes. is devastating because there's one order. He basically gets crushed. And it just underlines the fact that this movie version of Dumbledore is basically derelict in his duties. Like they just walked in, killed Dumbledore, knocked out an order and walked out. And there's no response except Harry chasing them across the field. You want to see the Order of the Phoenix there, and you want to see the DA there for Harry. So, miss that, certainly. And no explanation for why Snape is called the Half-Blood Prince. Right. It's just, sure. (laughs) Number three. Yeah. The extremely goblet of fire voice. I love magic. Award for best use of, depiction of, or introduction of a magical ability or item or place or thing. We get a lot of new stuff in this movie. What's your fave? Rack spurts through Luna's glasses, I think, is my favorite. I know it's a small thing, but I just love the fact that, oh, wait, the rack spurts are legit. And it's like kind of buried the lead, guys. <laughs> the rack spurts are real. What and if she sees just, them through the glasses. What if it's just a filter that like shows you the dust in the air? Uh, yeah, but they were right by her head. <laughs> that's my, and my one and two and the Katie Bell curse necklace scene was yeah, really that's effective. That's good. Really, really like the way she kind of like floats and then whips down and then whips around and then hits the ground with like a lot of force. Sends a chill down my spine. That's quite, good. Quite terrifying. Really good stuff. I quite like the way that Felix Felicis and its effects are depicted. It's not perfect. Like, for example, Harry shouldn't just know to go to Hagrid. Right. The potion doesn't tell him It's that. a little bit like really good cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> the potion should be unlocking how he perceives yes. what he already knows. But that caveat aside, that whole sequence is really quite delightful and winning. The way that Daniel Radcliffe behaves in that entire sequence is great. I love when he sneaks up on Slughorn, snipping the tentacula leaves and just the way he comments on his behavior. And it's like, sir, that's all great. I quite like that. I really like that we get to see Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. It's actually pretty cool now having been to that shop at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando to see what an incredible job they did of replicating that from the film set. And then especially when you pan out from there and you see, you know, the carnage around that store in Diagon Alley, it really conveys effectively what Fred and George have built, what they've been able to do. And you're like, I would hang out here. That was the highlight of the movie for me was Wizard Reasons. And when you see like literally all of Diagon is dead except for their shop, which is bustling. Yeah. It's incredible. They're raking it in. They are. They're doing great. You got to be able to 
earn the galleons to support the dragon hide blazer habit. I love you know? it. I love it. I quite like the way that they designed the Half-Blood Prince's potions book, that issue of advanced oh, potion it looks making. looks wonderful. It's like, cool. yeah. You know, we spend so much time as readers thinking about those scribbles, and it is really cool to actually get to gaze down upon them on the page. The way that words are circled and then the yeah. line directs Harry out to further instructions about how to, you know, crush right. it with the side of the blade. That's just great. And then the Sectum Sempra scene. It's very, very... Harry and Draco's duel and the, the use of that spell in particular. Here's what I like about it. I don't mean to sound like a psychopath here. It's fucking violent. It is it really is violent. savage. I, I wasn't it's sure... It's got a very John Woo feel. Bathroom battle with like, yeah. you know, tile exploding and water flooding. There's just so much blood. I yeah. wasn't sure how much blood we'd see. And I think it's important. It's important to see that savagery and to know how that would make Harry feel, not only about the prince, but about himself Yes, as someone who did that, even if it, of course, was not what he meant to do. And so that whole sequence was great. I also liked cleaning up Slughorn's hideout. Yes. That was beautiful. Yeah. That was really great. I mean, they could do that with the burrow quite easily. There's eight of them. (laughs) (laughs) They're all there. He could easily clean it up. That's all I'm saying. Good shit. Yeah. Number four, that he was the friend. Some good stuff here. Award for the most effective snapshot of teen angst or romance. No shortage of options. Some good stuff. This This is is the best best stuff in this movie. Totally. I took notes in chronological order here. Ron touching Hermione's face at the burrow and saying, You've got a bit of toothpaste. It's just unreal super virgin shit from Ron there who has no idea how to talk to a woman. Also, (laughs) this ties in with Hermione basically spilling the beans when she smells the amortensia. It's like, Yeah, spearmint toothpaste. Smells like spearmint. Toothpaste. Yes. There are multiple yeah. callbacks. There's that. And then we get the moment later in the three broomsticks where Ron again points out something above Hermione's lips. It's like, Ron, we get it. You're looking at her lips a lot. Also, you don't know how to talk to women. But she is like mortified yeah. in that moment. And it's, oh my God. That's one of Emma Watson's like quietly best moments, actually just conveying the true despair you feel when you are a young person and you just want someone to notice you. And when they do, it's for the wrong reason mm-hmm. and how bad that feels. Mm-hmm. Very well done. Not romance, but I love the way the potions class reacts to Harry winning the Felix. They're just also visibly pissed about it. I love it. Yeah, there's some really great <laughs> not naturalistic scene building shots that actually really work like this scene is slightly problematic but it looks great is when they introduce the amortensia and like all the girls are like (sighs) yeah kind of like gasping and like looking at it thinking about like what they're going to do with it that plays a little weird but quite effective to look at and yet like as you said when slug is handing the vial to harry and then you see them all lined up on the Opposite yeah. end of the classroom. And they're like, this fucker again? Yeah, it's great. That <laughs> is Hermione's got the bushy hair from yeah. having like been just working so hard over the steamer for cauldron. That's fabulous. Also, in that three broomsticks foam mustache moment I mentioned a moment ago, Jason talked earlier about when Ron observes Ginny and Dean. When Hermione then spins that around and says, what if she looked over and saw you snogging me? Would you expect her to get up and leave? And then Ron brings that up later. Me snogging her? Like, that stuff is just great and very true to life about how teenagers dance around the idea of engaging with somebody that they're interested in. The conversation between Ron and Harry in bed at night about Ginny and then Hermione. Yeah. You know, she's got nice skin because Harry can't obviously say to Ron, yeah, you know, I regularly think about fucking your sister. So he says the most absurd thing. And then Ron's like, Hermione's got nice skin. That's a great moment. 
Neither of them can say aloud the thing they really think. Harry's standing up when Ginny arrives at the slug party and then Hermione giving him that knowing look like, I see what you did there. I'm on to you. That's great shit. Also at that party, Cormac dipping his finger in the ice cream and then licking it while looking at Hermione. What a scumbag. Wow. What a moment. Shouts to original Dickon from Game of Thrones and Adam from Unreal. You are always fucking weird. The scene where Hermione sees Ron and Lavender kiss and then is so vulnerable and so emotional and says to Harry, how does it feel, Harry, when you see Dean with Ginny? That is just actually a beautiful moment in the way that Harry is there to support her. And then Hermione murders the birds, which is less good. The murdering the birds part is less good. But her vulnerability and emotion is really beautiful and captivating in that moment. Ron sitting down on the couch at the burrow between Harry and Ginny as Ginny was hand-feeding Harry pies. Quietly as much of a cock block as Dumbledore's. Yes. <laughs> Ginny bending down to tie Harry's shoe. That's cute. Can we also, talk like, about that for a minute? I just want to say, like, why are you wearing shoes at night in the burrow? You've been here for, like, the whole day for a long time. It's, like, 11 o'clock at night and you're wearing shoes inside. Very strange. It's very strange. I don't know. He doesn't have the React Ellen 87s like we do. Oh, my so. God. Gotta Listen, flex. he doesn't treat them with as much care. The Lavender Hermione Hospital Great showdown. Stuff. Possibly the one of the best scenes in the film. How is he? <laughs> I love, as I said, the way that Ron says Hermione's name. One of the best things about that scene is that the adults are there to witness it. Hmm. It's just such a contradiction and such a contrast between all of these emotions. And I actually, that's one of the Gambon moments I do like when Dumbledore's like, ah, to yeah. feel love's keen sting. That's very funny. Any other teen angst or romance moments you've got? Yeah, I like all of those. And like I said before, one of the things I think was most effective was Harry's concerns that Ron will be pissed if he dates Ginny were just really, that came through quite well. Do you miss, though, Ginny dunking on Ron? Basically, the inciting incident. Yes, I do miss that. I miss that, too. Okay. Number five. Yeah. Sights and sounds. Most notable hair, costume, score, CGI element, or visual. So the inferior, I think, are great. Everything in the cave, although slight nitpick, I think the cave is a little small. Yeah. The cave's a little small inside. I I don't totally get, like, the crystals that they're standing on. Yeah, I thought it would be vast, much more vast inside, and I didn't get the glow. But other than that, I I liked everything that happened in there. And I thought Dumbledore's fire lasso was awesome. Yeah. And I love seeing it from underwater first. That's incredible. So I also miss the green glow and sort of how that conveys the distance like literally and metaphorically that they still have to travel. But I do kind of like the visual palette of everything in the cave. It's almost shot in black and white. Yeah. And then when you get that burst of flame, it's such a contrast to the aesthetic of the scene to that point that it's just shocking. The fire lasso feels to me almost like a mini version of the duel between Dumbledore Mm -hmm. and Voldemort in the ministry where you're just like in awe of what he is capable of, of his power. That's incredible. I like the Unbreakable Vow effect at the beginning of the film. I liked it too. That was a very quick and quiet moment, but the way you see like the marks in their hands and the idea of physically manifesting the way that that magic is ingrained in you and not letting go of Mm -hmm. you, I I quite like. What do you think of the way Fenner Greyback looks? Very creepy. I wasn't sure what I was thinking when it's like you're expecting this half human, half, it definitely skews more human and weird looking, almost Mm orc-like, but I thought it was good. It was creepy. It's very creepy. I pictured him quite differently, so it took a little getting used to for me, but it works for me now. I had Katie's airlift here. It was almost something from a a horror movie. Very haunting. And you know what? I love the way Ron 
looks playing Quidditch. I love the way Quidditch looks in this film, just as an enterprise. This is, I think, very fun and cool. I think this is some of the best and most visceral Quidditch because there's a lot of physical contact happening in this game. Yes. And the way that they film the keepers in particular, both during tryouts and in the match, quite good. Number six, best quote. I have fewer than usual. Why don't you start? Okay. You can tell me all about that tosser, Harry Potter. That's from the dime. The dime. (laughs) At the train station. What could have been with the dime? Stood the dime up. Tough look for my guy Harry there. Very, very tough. Tougher look for my guy Dumbledore, but tough uh, here's, look for let my me, guy Harry. How about this? So Harry, Ron, and Hermione are catching up at the burrow, and they're discussing Dumbledore and how he might be getting old. And Harry says, he's only what? And then Ron goes, 150? Give or take a few years. Very funny. <laughs> That's good. Well, we get an actual what could be safer good line. Shit. I love when the bit is just right there. Yeah. Good shit. When Luna is fixing Harry's nose, she says, personally... I think you look a little more devil may care this way, but it's up to you. (laughs) That's fabulous. At Weasley's Wizards, when Ron's like, how much for this? Five galleons. How much for me? Five galleons. I'm your brother. Ten galleons. (laughs) (laughs) I want more Fred and George. They're so good. When... Hermione is giving Ron shit in the Great Hall, and then Ron says, turn around, you lunatic. Kind of mean, of course, but the way that Rupert Grant delivers that line is very funny, as is the way he says when discussing his romance with Lavender. It's chemical. Yeah. At the Slug Club, Hermione is discussing her background, and she goes, my parents are dentists. They tend to people's teeth. And Slug Horn asks, fascinating. And is that considered a dangerous profession? It's great. I guess it just goes to show you that Arthur is probably about par for the course in terms of like muggle. Maybe more informed than most, yeah, maybe actually. Slightly a terrifying more informed. prospect. Yeah. A more serious line that I actually like and think is one of the better Dumbledore lines in the film. This memory is everything. Without it, we are blind. Without it, we leave the fate of our world to chance. I remember that line. That's one of the lines that I can feel and see hearing it and seeing it in the trailer for the first time. However, I must note that it is followed by the awful, you have no choice. Again, it's a story about choice. Now, in retrospect, my favorite, it's Lav and Hermione arguing at Ron's bedside. How is he? How's my one one? And then they go on for a little bit. And then uh, yeah. Lav says, well, you just want him now because he's interesting. <laughs> and, and Hermione goes, he's been poisoned, you <laughs> daft dimbo. <laughs> It's like, that's great. And again, the adults are just standing there watching that. I love it. Uh, Ron, when he's ingested the love potion, it's beautiful, isn't it? The moon. (laughs) I love him. We already talked about the O to be young and to feel Mm -hmm. love's keen sting Dumbledore line, but that's very funny. I like when Slughorn says my own interests are purely academic, of course. Everything Jim Broadbent does in the movie is great. Everything he does, particularly in the Felix sequence, is great. That's a very funny one. More serious line reading from him. You have no idea what he was like even then. Given how few of the memories we get in the film, a line like that actually carries a lot of weight. We do, thank God, get the This Has Known Magic line. Slightly tweaked from the book, but important to hear it. Delivered quite coldly from Gambon. (laughs) Uh, finally, my last nominee. Years ago, I knew a boy who made all the wrong choices. Please let me help you. That's Dumbledore to Malfoy. We don't get the mercy line, which I miss, but that line carries a lot of emotional weight. Finally, number seven. Who won the movie? Jim Broadbent as Slughorn. That's my pick as well. That's great. Book Slughorn is a slightly more oily character. 
Whereas Jim Broadbent brings a kind of like a wide-eyed charm Mm -hmm. and a delight at, you know, I, I don't know if anybody is really appreciating being around wizards and witches as much as movie Slughorn is. He's like, this is great, isn't it? We can do magic. Here are these young kids coming up in the world and they can do magic. I'm interested in them. And he brings a a true delight to the role, which I really appreciated. And I didn't think was necessarily there on the page. Really brings something new to it, which I liked. That's a really interesting way of putting it. He won the movie for me, too. It's not how I pictured the character in many respects, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a fabulous portrayal. I love the balance of that joy and that genuine excitement, maybe to exploit something, maybe to just appreciate it purely, but to participate in the magic of the world paired with the regret that you can feel in many ways derailed his entire life. Really understanding and believing that this person made a mistake that he has carried with him forever. It's just unbelievably well done. Obviously, we both are going to pick Luna again. She's She's just incredible. It's fabulous. I think it's a really good Emma Watson performance. I think it's a good one, too. And as I said, I think this is the best Rupert Grint movie. I love all Rupert Grint movies. I think he really gives you the range here. And also, like, peak Rupert Grint with the good hair. This is a good one for him. I love him. Yeah. All right, friends. We thought this called for a more practice hand. So thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again soon. For the beginning of our Deathly Hallows deep dive, full schedule details coming soon. Until then, remember, binge mode's no one. Bit of a tosser, really. So, uh, listen, what time are you... 11 o'clock. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll be waiting. Hello, Harry. Dumbledore, can you... I know that this is, I've been saying, like, can you involve me and stuff? Can we just hold on for literally six minutes? You see, over there, do you see her? This is the hottest girl I've ever seen in my life, and she talked to me. Do as I say, Harry. Grab my arm. Fine.